Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Tortoise. Hello, I'm Giles Wittell, Tortoise's deputy editor, and I'm back in the editor's chair for this episode. From Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. Yet another indictment of former President Donald Trump, this time for his alleged role in trying to overturn the election results in 2020. Zoo in eastern China is reassuring its visitors that their sun bears are not people dressed in costumes. Burkina Faso and Mali have issued a joint statement saying they'll regard any military intervention in Niger as a declaration of war on them. For the 14th time in a row, interest rates go up. Today we've increased bank rate by 0.25 percentage points to 525 I'm on the roof of the Prime Minister's house. I'm joined by Keith Blackmore, Claudia Williams and Patricia Clark. Hello. 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 You are each going to pick what you think should lead the news. We're going to discuss them and then I'll pick the top story. Later, we'll also hear from a listener who thinks we missed something on Niger in Monday's episode when we talked about the coup there. But let's start with long stories short... The idea is you give us a teaser of what you're going to talk about in a single sentence. Keith, what's yours? The trial of the century. Ron Seal, eh? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Claudia? England's Wild West returns. Ah. Images of sunsets. (laughs) Patricia? Something like that. Dignity and death. Very good. Okay, thank you. Keith, let's start with yours. What is it in a nutshell or... uh, Eggshell, whatever you want. Mine is inevitably the um, indictment of Donald J. Trump for trying to subvert American democracy. It seems to me that this is is a story we've been waiting for for at least two and a half years since the January 6th riots. And some of us have been expecting something like this for a long time, including the period when Trump was president. But the this is the... He's now had 78, I think, felony counts uh, he's facing. That's if you add up all the counts in all the indictments? In all the three, the three cases that so far we know about. There's a fourth imminent, I think. But the, these are the ones that are, are going to be the key moment in the whole Trump story, I think. Um, if It's hard to imagine what will happen if uh, Trump is convicted because if he's um, in prison, he can still run um, for president next year. 
the latest poll, the latest New York Times poll, showed him running at 43%, exactly the same as Joe Biden. So it, 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 it seems almost impossible to believe, but it is possible the Americans will elect a president next year who's in prison. I used to think it was impossible that Trump could become president in the first place, and in 2016 he proved that wrong. So I'm taking nothing for granted. seems to me that this is the biggest story, not only this week of today, but it will be the biggest story of the next 14 months. So the story is, in a sense, the indictment. What, what do you make of, I mean, we're not lawyers here. Do you think the indictment's strong? Yes, it feels much more robust than the other ones. It seems to have been designed. It, 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 first of all, it's 45 pages long and it's very readable. You know, you don't, you don't need to be a lawyer to understand the points that are being made. Um, but it also seems to have been designed to be effective. There are, there are six co-conspirators, but none of them have been charged. If they had been charged, it would change the whole nature of the prosecution, as it were. They would, it would make it much more complicated and more difficult to bring to a speedy conclusion. And that's the other big issue here, is the speed with which this can be brought to trial. Because the 70-day speedy trial rules seem pretty malleable to lawyers. You know, they, they can start them, stop them, delay them. And already you can see that Trump's defense team is beginning to angle for not only a delay in the process, but, but moving it out of Washington because it's a largely democratic state. Haven't they got a point there? No, I don't think so, do you? Well, again, we're not lawyers. Um, the insurrection or the, the, the attack on the Capitol obviously happened within D.C., but if the argument is uh, a Republican president, ex-president's not going to get a fair trial in a 95% Democrat city, I'd have thought, fair point. In any democracy, you have to accept there are processes that are supposedly set aside from politics, and justice is one of them. And as soon as that gets uh, compromised, I think uh, the whole system comes to a grinding halt. We're not going to litigate it here. We're trying to assess its its kind of salience as a story, which is hard hard to argue with. I was struck, though, by something that um, in my diligent reading from the centre-right press of the, uh, this story, that he's not charged with insurrection. He's charged with conspiracy. So in the end, uh, lawyers for the prosecution are going to be trying to get inside his head and tell jurors or whoever's listening what Trump was thinking. And Trump, will, can't he just come back and say, that's not what I was thinking? I don't think they are going to have to say what he's thinking. I think it's pretty clear already that they have copious evidence of what he was saying and doing at the time. And it's really interesting in that indictment, the first time we got a sense that we're going to get a lot of the contemporaneous notes of Mike Pence, the vice president, who is a big part of this case. Um, I think, and I think it's quite likely we're going to see a lot more evidence emerging in the, in the weeks to come. Patricia, what do you make of all this? So I think the challenge for a newsroom is potentially Trump fatigue. This is the third set of charges that he's seen. But I think, in my opinion, this is by far the most important set of challenges as well. Um, firstly, what I think is really interesting about the story is that it doesn't just look at what happened on January 6th, which is what comes to mind when you think about the, all the things that Trump has done wrong. It looks at the whole two years leading up to that and it looks at whether he has been deliberately trying to change the narrative. And I think that has huge implications for 
for the American constitutional values. Which... When, when you say change the narrative, are we talking sort of pitch rolling for the election, the way he prepared the ground for his argument that he thought he correctly anticipated he'd have to make about um, fraudulent voting? Precisely right. that. So I think on the one hand, we've got a, sort of the first big trial that looks at disinformation and how it spreads on the internet. Um, I think that's a really interesting part of it. And then you've got the angle of, you know, the American Constitution is something that is so important to Americans. They talk about it constantly. Mm. This is the first trial that really looks at whether a president can can undermine it in such a way as to not concede an election. And then finally, I think that the counter argument for, for people who are sort of pro-Trump is that he was just expressing his free speech. Mm-hmm. And again, that's a sort of core American value. And I think that all of that is going to be debated in court. And I think that's really, really important. And I think it's quite interesting, that point about um, free speech, though. I think in the, the indictment carefully sidesteps that by saying that he's entitled to free speech and to have he's entitled to have indeed lied about uh, what happened. What he was not entitled to do was to use those lies as the basis of a conspiracy to stop the inauguration of Joe Biden. And I think uh, it, it was just one more sign, I think, of the intelligence and, and um tactical uh, wherewithal of the special counsel in this case. Mm. Claudia, in all the welter of Trump stories that we've had over the past uh, seven years, does this cut through? Is this in a category of its own for you? Yes and no. This is historic. It's huge. It has had wall-to-wall coverage. That is obvious. But We are hardwired, I think, sometimes as journalists to think that historic moments should lead the news. And my question about this specific story is where it goes next and what we learn from it. Mm -hmm. Because it's historic, but we knew it was coming. We have learned some from the indictment, but a lot could have been predicted. And there's not a huge amount that's very surprising. And where it takes us is to a trial. And we don't know when that will be. We don't know what's going to happen. When we're talking about the kind of broader political impact on the election, we're speculating. When we look at the kind of short-term impact this has, I don't know if there is any. People's kind of perspectives on it follow party lines generally, Mm. or if not party lines, kind of Trump-based lines. And so I'm kind of in this position where I feel like obviously it's a massive deal, but where does it take us, what's new, and what does it change right now? And ultimately, I think the the time for it to lead the news is the trial. That's where we get an answer. That's when we see the impact. Until that point, it's kind of speculation and same old, same old. Keith, do you see what's going on here? There's some fairly sophisticated manoeuvring by both your fellow guests to head off the super tanker of this story. It's like they're, they're zooming around in zodiacs in front of the boat to try and distract it. Reasons why not now. Very interesting. <laughs> Keith, thank you. Claudia, what's your story and why do you think it matters most? So unlike Keith's story, mine is the conclusion of a trial that has an answer. <laughs> and we know where it's going. Um, so until uh, earlier this year, Dartmoor National Park was the only place in England and Wales where there was a right to wild camp without the permission of a landowner. And that was until January when Alexander Darwell, who is a hedge fund manager who owns around 4,000 acres in Dartmoor, he challenged that tradition and he won a court battle to end the right. And that prompted thousands of people to turn up on Dartmoor and protest. 
under the stars. I can I can see Keith laughing, but it's very important. And uh, this week, the Court of Appeal overturned it, which means that the right to wild camp without permission has been restored to Dartmoor. And the whole case hinged on whether wild camping counted as open air recreation, and uh, which is what the original law permits. And it kind of led to these completely ridiculous back and forths in court, um, including the landowner's lawyers argued that wild camping is not recreation because sleeping is not an enjoyable activity. <laughs> um, the point of putting up a tent is to escape the open air and concern that tents might lead to other structures or huts. And then the kind of Court of Appeal judges ended up poking and prodding this argument and kind of asking these questions, including, for example, whether inflatable goalposts from Argos for children, very specific, um, to allow children to play football would be allowed or would that count as a kind of temporary structure in this kind of bizarre legal This was argument. the appeal court judges in their cross-examination. Yeah. So there is another side to this, isn't there? Um, there is uh, so-called wild camping can be a blight. It can just leave, you know, you can go to decathlon, buy your tent for so little that it's disposable, head off with your mates in your GTI Leave your beer cans, leave those nasty little bits of plastic that hold them together, <laughs> leave, leave the empty gas bottles. This feels personal. <laughs> and frankly, leave the, the other human detritus. And I think that's what they were complaining about. So that's what they were saying. They were saying, look, we're custodians of this land. Uh, we want to protect it. Um, wild campers are or can be a nuisance. A lot of people kind of who would disagree with their perspective say, look, three million people turn up to Dartmoor every year a very tiny number get kind of told off or or it, it's it's like 100 people have have got in trouble mm-hmm. for what, the way they camp. Wild camping is not just, you know, it's not a free-for-all. There are very specific rules. You have to be in a tent. You can only stay somewhere for two nights. You can't use a barbecue. It's very specific. That was already the case that was already before the this case. challenge. That okay. is, and obviously in any of these situations, there are people that are going to break rules. There always are. But that doesn't mean you take away that right for everyone, a lot of this comes down to the fact that we don't necessarily have the best relationship with our countryside. And really, for me, I'm, you know, I do think this is a very important case. And what I think it is about fundamentally is who owns land in England and who has access to that land, who has access to the countryside. The stats are kind of remarkable. I, I found it incredibly shocking. So when it's very hard to know who actually owns land in England, but half of the country, we know that half of the country is owned by less than 1% of its population, largely aristocracy and corporations. Only 8% of land in England and 3% of rivers are covered by a legal right to roam. So the majority of the public only have access, in terms of the countryside, to 8% of land and 3% of rivers. And we can't care about something we don't have access to. England's situation is very different to Scotland, which does have a much broader right to roam, and so do many places in Europe. So I think we sometimes see the situation that we're in and assume that it's fixed, and it's not fixed. These are hard-fought rights that can also be undone, and we need to take notice when people try to. Other places, Patricia, I want to come to you as an expert on Spain. <laughs> did, did, in other countries, in other jurisdictions, I think they might think it odd that there are any rights at all to roam on land that isn't yours. I'm definitely not an expert in, on Spain, but I did grow up there, and wild, all forms of wild camping are illegal there. We illegal? Have, 
illegal. And actually, it is quite strict. Where I spent a lot of time in the summer in the south of Spain, there was a sort of chunk of land in front of the house we used to spend time in. And I remember that if you put people would park their vans there, and if people put down a, a little chair, or if they opened their, they, they left their surfboard leaning against the door, there was a legal distinction between being parked versus being a, a camper who right. had spent time there. And the police would quite often come and, and you can get fined between 30 and 3,000 euros, I think. So it's a really, it's really frowned upon in Spain. It's seen as damaging to the countryside. But we do also have a lot of, you know, a lot of aristocratic land ownership, a lot of the similar issues to, to what we have here in the UK. What do you make of this as a story, uh, Keith? I think it's, um, I think it's a small story, but a big principle. And I think it's, I, I agree with Claudia. I think it's, um, I think it's a very important development. And um, I think uh, it, this particular story illuminates the issues. I do think that the business of regulating campers is important, but that's that's a secondary issue to actually allowing people to do it. I should just say that the only country I know anything about, apart from this one, is, is Bermuda. And um, in Bermuda, where land is very restricted because it's just a, it's really a hundred and fifty tiny islands linked by roads and bits and pieces, everyone is entitled to um, access to the beach up to fifteen metres from the waterline. So you can go up to the poshest estate, usually owned by a celebrity or a hedge fund manager or a former presidential candidate, and um, and you can still walk up to 15 metres onto their beach. Above the high water That's mark. amazing. Yeah. So there's really no such thing as, as a private beach? Well, there, there is, because you know, you've got to get round to right. it. You have to go by boat or swim. But, um, but I thought it was interesting. But it's the same principle. Mm. All right. Thank you very much, Claudia. Thank you for your story. Let's take a moment and then we'll hear what Patricia thinks should lead the news. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Right, Patricia, tell us about your story in more detail. Uh, sure. So just before I start, I should warn our listeners that this is a difficult story. It deals with suicide and assisted dying. Um, my pitch is about a British man called David Hunter, who has just been released from prison in Cyprus um, after killing his wife, Janice, in 2021. 
Now, David and Janice were married for 52 years um, and she was suffering from advanced blood cancer. He says she was unable to leave the house. She was in severe pain. She wasn't sleeping. Often she was crying. And he says that she had been begging him to take her life for weeks. Um, it's, a, it's a really tricky and tragic story. In December of 2021, David suffocated his wife to death. Um, and then he was found by the police after a failed suicide attempt. To, to put it into context, euthanasia and assisted dying are illegal in Cyprus, as they are here in the UK. And David Hunter was then taken into custody and he was prosecuted for murder, which comes with a life sentence. Um, he's been in jail ever since then, but after a year and a half of legal wrangling... His initial sentence was murder. Yeah. He was He was convicted of murder. Convicted yeah. of okay. murder, yeah. But after a year and a half, the court in Cyprus has now overturned that initial decision. And they've said that he's not guilty of murder. They weren't able to prove that this was a premeditated act. Instead, they found him guilty of manslaughter, which comes with a two-year sentence. But because he'd already been in jail for 19 months, they set him free. Put aside all the legal details, put aside everything I've just said, uh, it's, heart, it's a story about assisted dying, and it's about dignity and death. It's had a huge impact in Cyprus. It's the first case of its kind. This is a socially conservative country where the Greek Orthodox Church has a lot of influence, and they're broadly, you know, assisted dying and euthanasia are both frowned upon. It's a taboo topic, but I'm pitching it to you here in the UK because I think it's relevant to us. David Hunt is a British man. Mm-hmm. He's got an incredibly powerful story. I find it hard to talk about. And assisted dying is illegal here in England in Wales. But the Health and Social Care Committee in the House of Commons are considering changing the legislation. They've just had an inquiry. A report is due out at the end of this year. So it's an important time for us to be grappling with these issues. Mm -hmm. I think quite often you see these individual cases talked about and people go, oh, God, that's so sad. Oh, God, that's so tricky. But they never get put together. We never really talk about it on that kind of on a legal mm. debate level. And that's what I want to be seen. And that's why I think it should lead. Yeah, hitherto, these stories as reported in the UK have mainly been, they've been equally heartbreaking, but they've mainly been about Brits having to travel to Switzerland yeah. or elsewhere because of the, of, of the law here. Um, you talk about the committee and it, just to bring it back to the, London uh, and its uh, report due and the inquiry that they've held, that's a separate thing from a, a groundswell of support in Parliament for legislation. That, mm. that that would have to come later, wouldn't it? And we, we're not there yet, are we or are we? I don't think we are, but the public is, is there. I think that uh-huh. most data shows that there is broad support for this. I think 70% of people support assisted dying in some form. The mm-hmm. British Medical Association, I think it's 50% of doctors who think that some sort of assisted dying should be allowed. Um, and they've gone from taking a, an anti-euthanasia stance to, to, to a neutral stance on it. So there's slow movement, but on a political level, I don't think we're there yet. We're still at the point of debate. We're still at the point of, of discussion. Keith, do you see this as a sad or... with? With Happy Elements story, by the way, the the reaction of the family has been, um, obviously, they're delighted that he's been released. Um, But do you see it as principally a compelling human interest story about a Brit abroad or the much bigger story that um, Patricia's pitching? I think it's both, isn't it? It is a heartbreaking uh, story of a, of a Brit abroad or just a, just people abroad. Mm. But but I think that the reason I don't think it is the most important story is because I think it's still just another step on a path. We haven't got to the point where 
you know, the country has decided what it's going to do about assisted dying, but it does seem that it, it's just one more marker on, a, on what looks like progress towards that. Is it possible, by the way, to join the dots and have any uh, pro-assisted dying campaigners in the UK picked up on this and said, right, now it's our turn since since last week? No. Not yet? No, not yet. Not that I've seen, actually. I mean, I think... I take your point that it's a step on the path, but if you don't cover these stories, then we're never going to to make it to the end of the path. Um, and just on one more thing I did want to add is that we have got an aging population. One in four people are predicted to be 65 years or over by 2050. I think so many of us deal with these problems in silence because of the taboo around it, and it's only going to become more relevant. So it really matters. Mm. Claudia, what do you reckon? I think the... That's like kind of separately to that, whether I think this is the biggest story of the week. I think it's a story that most people will remember from this week. I think it's, it is really massive. And the pictures of him and the fact that, um, you know, cameras followed him to her grave. It, it's horrifying in many ways, the type of coverage that it leads to. Whether I think it will push things on, I think, is up to kind of... It's not necessarily journalists who do that, I think we report on what's happened. I think it's, yeah. it's actually up to, as you say, it's the doctors, it's the public, it's parliamentarians, it's... It's kind of slightly different debate where it takes us. Yeah, and I don't think we should presuppose uh, a a desired outcome. We should remember that there's a big constituency, yeah. not necessarily a religious constituency, that doesn't want, quote-unquote, progress along this road. Before I make a decision about which story we lead with, I want to know which one you'd all pick. But you can't choose your own. Who should we start with? Keith. Okay, well, I have to apologise to both Claudia and Patricia because I jumped on the Trump story before anybody else, and it seems to me such a monumentally huge story that um, no, you're not allowed that, to that, pitch that, for your own story. I thought both of the other stories are admirable uh, attempts to thwart me, um, wow. but in this case, I think um, it's I think very underhand. Uh, I think Patricia's story is probably what the one I would go for, and um, Claudia's. Uh, Excellent though it is, I think is less important than that. Okay, thank you. Claudia, which one would you go for? You cannot name your own. You can't even talk about it. <laughs> uh, well, I don't want to follow Keith's pitch for himself there. Um, I'm going to go for Patricia's story because I think it is hugely emotive and I think people will grab hold of it and it's something that we don't often see in the news. Okay, thank you. Patricia. So I will say that I would not have clicked on a story about Dartmoor before this conversation, <laughs> but Claudia's pitch was really compelling. Um, I think there are important human rights issues at the heart of it. Having said that, yeah, I think I have to go with Trump um, because I think I think it's a historic moment. Right, blimey! I, I coming into this, I thought, yeah, this is a gimme. Um, I know exactly which way I'm going before we even started. Um, and I'm actually thinking on my feet right here. I, As I speak, I have not decided which way I'm going to go. Um, I think we have to go with Trump leads the news because it's a monumental, historic story, whichever way it turns out. As you said, Keith, in a sense, the least dramatic outcome is that he goes to prison. Anything else... Uh, which is entirely possible, is probably leads to a constitutional crisis. I do think, however, there's a possibility that his lawyers will obtain sufficient delays that um, it's unresolved by election time, so he's not actually campaigning from prison, uh, and that then he loses 
And so we have a non-Trump presidency. That is, to me, the least dramatic um, and perhaps most um, uh, propitious outcome for democracy. Uh, while camping comes second. Yes. David Hunter third, even though two out of the three of you chose it, um, for the reason that it's a step on the road. And we've been talking about assisted dying and the way the needle is swinging backwards and forwards in this country, pro and con, um, uh, taught us for a long time. And I do think this will play into it. I don't think uh, it, it will necessarily be decisive. And so for me, uh, the David Hunter story is principally a, a, a human interest story about an individual. And for that reason, it comes third. Now, as I said earlier, we've heard from a listener who thinks we missed something on Monday's episode when we talked about the coup in Niger. This is Tanaka, and he's sent us a voice note. Uh, greetings, news meeting team. I'm a new fan, and I've thoroughly enjoyed your podcasts. Though as an African, I feel compelled to share a friendly criticism regarding your summary of the ongoing coup in Niger. I feel an understated aspect of reporting on West African stories is the ongoing and controversial continued engagement of France, the former colonial power uh, of the region. France's military intervention and monetary influence, among other controversial uses of soft power, have contributed significantly to democratic backsliding in the region. Anti-democratic forces like the Niger Junta and the Wagner Group are often bolstered by a very real animosity between locals and what they perceive, I might argue rightly, as French neocolonialism. As an African, there's always this general underlying feeling that France's influence in Africa is never to be criticized and should be ignored. I think more Western journalists should be aware of how this will completely undermine them when they attempt to raise the alarm to Africans about the very real and questionable practices of other powers like Russia, China, and the UAE. Thank you, Tanaka. If you want to get in touch to tell us what you think should lead the news, then you can email newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. Keith, Claudia, Patricia, thank you all very much. James Harding will be back on Monday, so please join him then. Have a good weekend. Tortoise. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.